The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing great, Father. You just finished a long trip, right? Yes, Father. Long road trip with the whole family. Yes, Father. How exciting is that? How many children under the age of... uh, the oldest is how many? The oldest is seven, Father. Seven years old. Yes. Five, five, five children. children. Yes, Father. That's quite a brave, brave man and a brave, uh, brave wife. <laughs> yes, Father. Uh, make a road trip like that, and uh, but it was a great trip, I hear. Yes, Father. The children did exceptionally well. I was very proud of them, and we uh, we actually went up to Round Top and mm-hmm. uh, the Catskill Mountains to visit uh, the uh, the Saint Joseph's Novitiate up there. <clears throat> also, the uh, the seminary uh, mm-hmm. uh, congregation of Saint Pius V Seminary, mm-hmm. and uh, we spent several days up there with uh, visiting all of the seminarians, the priests, uh, the bishops as well, and mm-hmm. uh, many, and the sisters, many yeah. of the sisters as well. So it was it was a great time. It was very inspiring to see uh, so many fellow traditional Catholics there. I, um, some estimates I think were around a thousand a thousand uh, souls were there so it was well that's comforting to know because the, the, there were notable absences in our pews on Sunday <laughs> and so. uh, I think they were they were probably at Round Top rather than in Las Vegas so but that's uh, that's great I'm mm-hmm. glad July 4th was the Sunday of course and July 2nd is the sisters traditional feast day uh, the feast of the visitation for the taking of first vows the uh, entering the novitiate, right? The um, right. professions, yeah. and even uh, even the perpetual professions, right? So yes. we know a goodly number of the sisters who uh, who uh, moved up in the, uh, advanced in the in the uh, religious life. So mm-hmm. yes. that's why you went, right? Yes, it was very impressive uh, ceremony, Father. Everything was uh, perfectly ordered and and put together. It was uh, extremely impressive, and also, Father, I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to meet many, many of our, our viewers who were kind enough to introduce themselves and um, just had nothing but the, the kindest, nicest words for the program for yourself. And uh, that was really, really <coughs> neat, really nice to meet all of them. Well, Very they recognized you instantaneously. Yes. I'm sure, right? <laughs> and, uh, well, that's great. That's great, I'm sure. Uh, you know, you're right. but what, what, do they regard you as a bit of a celebrity? <laughs> Some might say that. <laughs> Some did. Anyway. But I attribute yeah. it all to you. So. And you were there with Mr. Jonathan Sapp, too. That's who true. Also, yes. this was your first visit there. Yes, Father. Yes. And it was Mr. Sapp's first visit yes, also. Father. Right? Yes. So. yes. Well, good. I'm glad you could uh, have that experience. Yes, really. I would absolutely encourage any of our any of our viewers to attend whenever they get the opportunity. It is um, amazing, most amazing, beautiful scenery up there. Um, mm. The nuns are just so incredibly welcoming and mm. uh and kind, and it was, it was really, really delightful. So good. Well, I'm yes. glad you got there, and I'm glad you got back safely. Yes, Father. Yeah. Great. Thanks be to God. Great to be back in Norwood with you, Father. <laughs> but uh, we have all kinds of topics for tonight, Father. Um, <clears throat> our email inbox has been 
has been very healthy as of late. Uh, so if we could just dive into some of these. Um, first one, we actually had a couple questions on this same topic um, about uh, traditional Catholics attending non-Catholic or Novus Ordo wedding ceremonies and some of the rules that apply to that. So if I could just read through some of these and uh, get, get your reaction to these. Mm -hmm. uh, this first viewer asks, is it okay for us to, to attend my sister's wedding? She says, the wedding will be a solemn high mass, but it will be done by Novus Ordo priests in a Novus Ordo church. If it is all right, should we, ref should we still refrain from receiving communion? May we just be present, but not participating in the Mass? What would your uh, answer to that one be, Father? Uh, the answer, no and yes. Uh, they should not receive, and they should not actually be there to worship, merely as a courtesy to the family member who is getting married. But uh, they should not actually take part in the active part in the ceremony. We don't regard the Novus Ordo as being Catholic any more than we regard modernism as being Catholic. <clears throat> we don't regard the Novus Ordo um, as, as being the Catholic religion any more than we regard the uh, modernism as being the Catholic faith. Right? Right. So, um, no, if, if they were to go, they'd, they'd go simply uh, as a courtesy, and it would be very obvious, I think, that they're there as a courtesy to the... Uh, Daughter, I would, I would express this caveat, though, <clears throat> that um, if the daughter is actually a traditional Catholic, was raised as a traditional Catholic, and is now, in a sense, um, adopting the Novus Ordo, or, you know, for whatever reason, uh, yielding to the wishes of a fiancé who is in the Novus Ordo, then there, there are some traditional Catholic clergy who told me that they would consider that to be even doubtfully valid. Really? <clears throat> yeah. If a, uh, if a bride, for example, who is raised in the Novus Ordo decides to go and be married in a Novus Ordo church by Novus Ordo clergy, they would consider that to be... Uh, um, you mean if some, she was raised some, in traditional? If she was raised, I'm sorry, in the traditional faith, okay. yeah. Okay. <clears throat> that they would consider that to be... Um, um, basically, a concession that she should not, could not, in good conscience, make, okay. and uh, should know better. And uh, there, there are those who say that. In fact, uh, I, I will tell you this: I, I asked Bishop Kelly about a case once, and it was like that. And he said that he would have severe questions as to whether it was even valid, <clears throat> because the the young person, uh, the, the fiancé, one of the, the man or the woman, had been raised as traditional Catholics, and they were actually um, yielding, for whatever reason, to be married in the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I don't necessarily see that quite, you know, I, I mean, uh, I, I had a, would have to think that over quite a bit. Um, and even uh, in expressing that thought to me, Bishop Kelly didn't seem uh, to be certain of it, you know. Uh, that was, a, let's say, first impression, I guess. <clears throat> um, so he didn't confirm that with me. But in any case, I can say that the most they could do under any circumstances would be to just be present for that as a courtesy to their loved one. And... Um, that uh, I would I would consider that to be a valid marriage, um, uh, but uh, at the same time, um, 
It's sad, actually, very tragic, because the Novus Ordo, let's face it, it is not Catholicism. Mm -hmm. It was never intended to be Catholicism. Those who invented it were inventing it precisely to create an ecumenical religion with an ecumenical service, right, which they call the New Order of Mass. Paul VI called it that. Um, and it's not this, the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. It was never intended to be. Okay. So, in any case, um, uh, that's that's as far as I. Okay. Well, that, that's a uh, that's a Novus Ordo wedding. But what about a, a Protestant or any other non-Catholic wedding? We had it. Well, you again, one could go to a. Uh, in the in the past, the church has given permission. Usually, it would be uh, done only with the permission of the local ordinary, which nowadays is essentially impossible. <clears throat> they'd laugh in your face if you asked for permission to attend one of these. They'd say, well, of course, he, if he, but you know, go to the traditional Mass. Now, there, that might be a problem, okay? But go to a Methodist or a Presbyterian service. Well, why are you asking? That's perfectly fine. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> um, but um, but uh, it, it is always understood that, you know, your presence there is a courtesy to the loved one, and if, as long as it's valid, as long as it's a valid marriage. If it's not a valid marriage, you couldn't go to the ceremony, you couldn't even go to the reception. How, how much you of an ob obligation does one have to ensure that it's a valid marriage? There would be a grave obligation really? to ensure that there's nothing that would render it invalid. <clears throat> I mean, if, if I had a Protestant, well, let me put it this way. If, um, Let's take, they usually, uh, in these cases, casus conscientia, in the, in the cases of conscience, they use Titus and Bertha. Okay, let's say Titus has a, a cousin, uh, Hermione, who, who is a Protestant. She was raised Protestant. She was, she was actually, from the get-go, she was baptized Protestant. <clears throat> so she's never been Catholic, uh, a member of the Catholic Church. And she's marrying in a Protestant church, let's say the Lutheran church to another Protestant. <clears throat> well, you know, once you say, okay, well, it would not be invalid because um, she was a baptized Catholic and she couldn't validly marry that way, okay? Because ordinary, the Catholics, if someone is baptized Catholic and tries to get married uh, by a Protestant minister, they'd not only be entering an invalid marriage, they'd be excommunicated for that. If they tried to get married before a justice of the peace, they couldn't be validly married, but they wouldn't necessarily be excommunicated because they're not partaking in a false religion. But in this case, Hermione was never Catholic to begin with, and um, so she's marrying a Protestant. Now, the church, in the decree Tabetsi uh, under Leo XIII, gave permission uh, for such marriages to be valid, that the church would recognize them as such. But you'd have to see if the man she's marrying uh, was married before. Or maybe he's a baptized Catholic. And so he couldn't marry her validly in a Protestant church. If he's married before and had a, had a wife already and they obtained an annulment, divorce, then of course Hermione couldn't marry him, right? If he has a living wife. So there are a number of reasons why the marriage would be, would be invalid from the get-go. That might not be... Uh, readily apparent. And so uh, a Catholic who, you know, would have to clear these these hurdles, as it were, uh, to make sure that he or she was not taking part in something that was either uh, just an act of public fornication 
and possibly even public adultery. Very grave matter here. So, yes, and also grave scandal for being present at that. So they have, they have uh, an obligation for due diligence to find out, well, is this going to be a valid marriage? Can I even attend the ceremony anywhere? And, um, you know, if, if it's not, if there's question about it being valid, I can't even go to the reception. I can't celebrate it. And does all of uh, the same line of reasoning apply to being a, a uh, bridesmaid or a groomsman at these weddings, or is there something well, more strict rules for that? Um, that there are rules that would uh, permit that. You see, it's the church would allow, for example, at a funeral, um, you to be a, a pallbearer at the death of a close associate, someone um, where you're expected to be as a matter of just common courtesy, common decency, certain respect for someone you're close to. But you couldn't participate in the ceremony, you know, to carry the body and to carry the body out, if this is a person who is actually a practice, was a practicing Protestant, and he's being buried in a Protestant cemetery, uh, even, uh, even some of the more rigorous moral theologians in the church said that it's possible to be legitimately a, a pallbearer if there's a, a real tie there. And um, as long as one does not take active part in the ceremony itself. So. Because no one would think just because you're carrying the body in and carrying the body out that you became a Protestant. No one would think that you're professing that religion just because you're carrying the body of <clears throat> someone, you know, who in life was near and dear to you. Um, but even there, in the old days, you'd need the permission of the local ordinary to, to clear the way for that. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't see how one could take part in, uh, let's say, a, even a valid Protestant marriage ceremony as a bridesmaid or a maid of honor, or, well, a maid of honor or a groomsman or a best man, even as a witness, without somehow taking part in the religious ceremony. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't see how that is possible. Uh, insofar as they take any active part in the ceremony, that would be communicatio and sacris. That's absolutely forbidden. It would be a mortal sin. <clears throat> to be there passively as an observer is, is something very different. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, if one goes to, um, a, let's say, a, a church that is not traditional Catholic and stands and sits with the congregation and opens and turns to the page in the hymnal and all the rest. I mean, they're taking an active part in this, at least. They're, they're going through the motions anyway. That's not right. Okay. Wow. I'd say if they have legitimate reason for being there, they should just kneel and pray the rosary for the whole, <laughs> for the whole ceremony. Okay. All right. That's great. But I think um, that answers a lot of questions, so thank you for that. Um, the way I look at it is uh, also with regard to funerals, which is a different matter. Um... You know, the people are kind of torn about that because, you know, their aunt, uncle, uh, someone near and dear to them has passed away, and they say, well, they're being buried in the Novus Ordo, or they're being buried in the Protestant church, if they were Protestant, not Catholic, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, should I go? You know, as, I, as we know, 
They understand the person who's deceased now knows the truth. The fact is now they wouldn't want to be buried there right now either, right? And they probably wouldn't want you there either, right? Because now they know that <clears throat> this is wrong. It's not the true faith. Let's say the, uh, the Lutheran or the Presbyterian or whatever. So, you know, again, if one were to go, it, uh, I, I think it's, it's uh, traditionally understood to be a courtesy to the deceased. But at this point, I think the deceased realizes that this was not right to begin with. And uh, so it seems to be more of a courtesy to the survivors, um, who otherwise might misunderstand you to be cold-hearted, hateful, uh, indifferent to someone you should care about. And, uh, I mean, the Church says if there's a bond of piety there, by right, piety is a virtue, and piety is a reason to actually be present. Passively, not taking part in false worship, be present as an act of piety to someone whom you owe a certain affection, and the fact that you're there suffering through, but praying for them, uh, it can be a real service to their soul. Pray for the best, right? Anyway, Tom, so uh, it's a little, it gets a little complicated when you add all the different circumstances. Sure, sure. Okay, <clears throat> well then, uh, next question, Father, this viewer asks uh, uh, something concerning the divine praises. Why is the, uh, the phrase, blessed be the Holy Ghost, the paraclete, omitted from the divine praises? Omitted by traditional myself, Catholics? Yes, yes. By myself? Mm -hmm. Ooh, by me. Yes. Uh, well, that's a very good question. Yeah. And um, as, as you go through the divine praises, blessed be God, blessed be his holy name, so, um, you come to that, uh, blessed be Jesus Christ and the most blessed sacrament of the altar, blessed be the great mother of God, Mary most holy. And uh, there was an invocation inserted there, actually, uh, during the tenure of John the Twenty-Third. I think it was 1961 that uh, John the 23rd told the Congregation of Rites or something to add the invocation, uh, blessed be the Holy Ghost, the paraclete. Right? Um, and uh, so there are traditional Catholic priests who have inserted that in the divine praises. There are different traditional Catholic priests who omit that. And I, I really haven't talked to a variety of priests about it. I remember there was one of our traditional Catholic priests who unfortunately uh, now is uh, numbers himself among, among the Tuk bishops, uh, so-called, but he actually wrote a monograph about that very, very invocation, Blessed Be the Holy Ghost, the Paraclete, and he criticized it and found it to be theologically wrong. And I think he even uh, indicated that in his estimation, from his own researches and reflections, it was somehow vaguely heretical to have it there in the divine prices. Now, I remember reading um, most of that monograph, and I didn't follow his arguments. I really didn't get, I, I didn't see what he saw. 
I do not see how that would be heretical. Um, any argument for, for omitting it would be the fact that it was early John the 23rd, and in the early days of John the 23rd, he was changing things for the sake of changing them. I mean, there was a great, great push, um, which eventually became adding the name of St. Joseph to the canon of the Mass, which was just a, a pretext, right, to begin changing the canon, just to make a statement, we can change the canon of the Mass, which had not been altered for 1,400 you know, years or so. <laughs> but the canon of the Mass can be changed. And they used the name of St. Joseph to do it. You know? And uh, so we found this pattern with the modernists that they wanted to show we can change everything. We can change the rosary, change the stations of the cross, we change the mass, change everything. And so uh, I could see a traditional Catholic priest saying, well, look, when John the 23rd came in, in 1958, with the death of Paul, uh, John, uh, uh, rather, uh, Pius XII, uh, thank you, uh, this mania for change came in, and so we just want to hold fast here. And we don't want to... Um, get into that, you know, as soon as you start admitting the idea, okay, we can start taking some of these changes, where do you stop? Where do you go? You have to look at every single one of them individually and say, well, can this be justified or can it be? And you have to go through all this theological wrangling and thoughtfulness about every single one of the changes that come in, came in, you know. And uh, at some point, you just have to basically uh, say, look, this is, this is the, where we're, we're, take, we're going to follow faithfully this, because this is the way the church approved it. And uh, when the modernists came in and they started changing things, you know, we, we're not going to start uh, sifting through all the things they did one by one and deciding whether or not we agree with it. Um, um, as though we're some kind of super magisterium. We're going to filter what they say and say, well, this is Catholic and that's not Catholic. Um, that's more or less, I think, what the Society of St. Pius X does, <laughs> you know, saying, well, we're going we're gonna to filter what they say and figure out what's Catholic and what's not. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's the right approach. Um, and, you know, what they, what they wind up with is kind of a hybrid, a, a mixture of changes and non-changes, you know, the traditional and the changed. So, so in any case... Um, I think the, the prudent thing to do under the circumstances is just to say, well, look, th this is where uh, we see the, this mania for change manifested itself, and um, this is where we're going to uh, have to draw the line here. You, you see, when you put this in context, um, you, you look back at the history of this before, during, and after this, this came out, and you saw what this was leading to. We didn't know it at the time, but that the the Holy Ghost was undergoing to go going to undergo this metamorphosis of becoming the Holy Spirit and then just being the Spirit and the Spirit this and the Spirit that. And uh, looking back at it, I, I can't help but think that was part just a step in that process of bringing us this way. Um. Would it be wrong to use it? No, I don't think so. No. Um, could I in good conscience do so? I think so. 
Um, but knowing the history of it and the background of it, and uh, John the Twenty Third's uh, cavalier approach to just want to change and change this and wanting to change that, and all making it more pious. I mean, adding the name of Saint Joseph the Canon. I mean, what could be more pious than that, right? And yet it, we saw it was a, a device. It was a modernist device to show we can change the canon. That everything is up for grabs, everything can be changed, as though it's all by human, it's all human device, that's all. Like the rosary itself, it changed the rosary, uh, whereas Catholic tradition had that it was given to us by the Blessed Mother. So who's going to claim the right to, um, to alter it? Well, the modernists, of course. Because again, nothing, nothing is sacred to them. Nothing is fixed. Um, they change the words of our Lord in the in the Mass, the words of consecration. Right? That nothing is sacred to them. They can change anything. Right? Um, so, in any case, um, do we have devotion to the Holy Ghost, the Paraclete? Yes. Even even if I may, just. Something I wanted to express, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but, you know, if you look at the divine praises, and you go, go down the list of the divine praises, okay, they all have to do with God the Father, God the Son, the Incarnation, right? They have to do with the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. They have to do with our Blessed Lady, okay? And you might say, well, I mean, the Holy Ghost overshadowed our Blessed Lady. And that's true. And our Lord was conceived. And so you have the divine praises in reparation for blasphemy. Well, at the time this was going on, the Holy Ghost wasn't being blasphemed too much. The name of God and the name of Jesus were being blasphemed. The name of Mary, the Blessed Mother, was being taken, even St. Joseph. But it wasn't common, really, I think historically, that people would invoke the, blessed, the, the Holy Ghost as a matter of blasphemy. So the, the divine praises were a matter of addressing blasphemy and making reparation for blasphemy. But not only that, I mean, you see the development here. You see, we're talking about God the Father and God the Son and the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph. I mean, they're all invocation of members of the Holy Family. You might say, well, the Holy Ghost, certainly overshadowing Mary, the Blessed Mother, had something to do with this. And you say, yes, but, but blessed be the Holy Ghost, the paraclete. I mean, that, that is... Actually, in a kind of a different, a different theme, as it were, yeah. you know, a different identifier, as it were. So it it doesn't quite fit theologically. It's not heretical or anything. It's just like it doesn't quite fit into that context. Yeah. I think one could make a theological argument about that, gotcha. uh, which just indicates to me all the more so they just inserted that for the sake of saying we can change this. Yeah. Anyway, Tom. Okay. Um, but if you hear me uh, adding that invocation, don't be scandalized. Okay, fine. <laughs> so, uh, I want to invoke the, the Holy Ghost, under, mm -hmm. but under the circumstances. But I, it just, it just, um, it was. It's a modernist step. Yeah. You know, they don't. They didn't do that just for the sake of. Uh, um, modernists do not do these things for the sake of inciting piety in the faithful. Okay. Fair enough. Well, moving on, Father. Um, 
says good. He says, uh, Father, I know this may be a trivial question to the normal questions you receive, but if you have a certain attachment to a sin, could you explain how to get rid of this attachment? Not a trivial question at all. No, not at all. And um, attachment, he didn't say venial sin or mortal sin. No. Well, meditation, well, prayer, to begin with, I'll be using meditation as a part of prayer, <clears throat> but uh, prayer... Um, uh, to start meditation, asking God, deliver me, please, O Lord, from this weakness, <clears throat> which is offensive to thee, dangerous to my soul, and scandalous to those around me. <clears throat> Pray that. Pray, God, oh, please, God, give me the grace to overcome this, whether it be a quick temper, whether it be laziness, right? Whether it be a little um, taking liberties in matters of um, impure thoughts or images or... Um, just lose speech and criticizing other people. It can be any number of things, right? But if people recognize they have this fault, and especially if it's a grave fault and gives grave scandal, all the more reason why they, they should actually spend time each day praying to God for deliverance from this and then uh, meditating upon the opposite virtue, patience, right? And um, uh, custody of the tongue, custody of the eyes, right? All of these things are good. And to to ponder over what we read in sacred scripture about our Lord and his example. Our Lord says, follow me, follow me. If you wish, come after me. After me, take up your cross every day and follow me. As a matter of fact, our Lord actually says, um, um, take my yoke upon you, right? And learn from me because I am meek and humble of heart. And there you will find rest for your souls. That's what he says. So he says, take my yoke. Well, his yoke is the cross, right? So he, in other places, he says, take my cross and follow me. If you do not take up your cross every day and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So our Lord is telling us, this is the yoke I want you to carry. And I want you to follow my example. And he starts out with meekness and humility of heart, which is the fundamental starting point for anybody who wants to overcome any fault because he has to admit that he's, he is at fault, right? He has to admit he has that weakness. So that's a good place to start. <clears throat> but then our Lord says, and he will find rest for your souls. And our, our Lord tells us there's the remedy there. You know, there's the remedy in this. So, But uh, to take some time each day, some say 15 minutes in mental prayer, meditating on things like that. Okay, what am I lacking? I take it to my Lord. I take it to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. And um, I invoke the saints in heaven to go with me to God in prayer, to join their prayers to mine and asking for this grace to overcome this. And then I spend time to meditate, meditating about our Lord's life and where he manifested these virtues of patience, of circumspection in speech, even with you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, how he dealt with sinners, right? Uh, so many things in our Lord's life, everything in our Lord's life, you know, maybe speaks of virtue. <clears throat> and so there's no virtue we can't find practiced by our Lord that is not edifying to ourselves. So to meditate on that, uh, think about our Lord's example, how we can follow it, how we can in the practical order follow that example. Here we can even think about the things that come up in daily life, because for the most part, it's, it's not as though every day we, we live a different life. I mean, the same things come up over and over again, right? But pretty much, right? 
I mean, the same child who was five years old yesterday is generally still going to be five years old for a few more days. And you're going to find the same, the same things, the same need for patience, <coughs> loving patience for the children. The same spouse you married isn't going to undergoing a necessarily great transformation overnight. So you can expect the same issues to come up, same boss, right? Same highway and the drivers <laughs> on the same highway and all the same things. And um, so, uh, you know, we can even single out, okay, this is what, um, this is what I'm usually tempted the most. This is when I most often fall, okay? And I'm asking God now to deliver me from this. And I'm looking at my Lord's own example in, in how he deals with this. And I want to learn from his example. So what practical, uh, you know, takeaway can I have from how I should deal with this question, uh, with this particular situation? And uh, you know what? They're going to get answers. They're actually going to get very practical answers as to what they can do to change the things, uh, how they deal with things, and therefore change the outcome. And um, how to respond differently with a different tone of voice, or how not to respond you know, at all. Um, I'm not saying that God will give them a script to follow, but he might. He might give them an actual script to follow. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to handle this. <clears throat> And uh, then going forward, well, finishing the meditation, they give thanks to God, right? They make a point of the things that they'd, they'd learned. Okay, I have practical resolutions now. I'm going to deal with these things. And um, as St. Catherine Labore said, if she had nothing come back, nothing concrete, she thanked God because she said, well, that's exactly what she deserved. So she wasn't upset about it. She said just at that moment, she wasn't getting specific answers to her very specific questions. But she knew that God wasn't ignoring her. He was just answering her in a different way. In any case, one always ends by thanking God for his indulgence <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, making some practical resolutions and uh, going out to put them into practice. So, you know, there you are. Yeah. There you have basically the ends of prayer, adoration, adoring God, recognizing, okay, God, I thank you. Uh, uh, for putting up with me for the times I did not adore you when I, my faults came to the foreground rather than my virtues in adoration of you. Um, so yeah, there you have the contrition, and then you have the uh, the supplication, of course, help me, help me to deal with this. And in the end, you have the, the thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. It's all there. It's great. All right, uh, well, Father, if we could try and get through some more of these rather quickly, that would be great. Uh, this viewer asks, regarding the five first Saturdays, does it still count toward the requirement of confession if the confession was made more than eight days prior or afterward? I don't think confession is required for first Saturdays or first Fridays. Uh, the confessions are required for uh, plenary indulgences. <coughs> They're called the usual conditions. Mm -hmm. Receiving Holy Communion worthily within a week. Uh, making good confession, receiving absolution within the week. Performing the, the act, offering the prayers, whatever it may be. <coughs> and um, also having a plenary indulgence, having a heart free from attachments to venial, habits of venial sin. Um, so that would include making a good confession, receiving absolution. But I don't think that um, 
there is any requirement for the fulfillment of First Fridays or First Saturdays for making a good confession. Obviously, if one fulfills the First Friday and the First Saturday requirements by receiving Holy Communion, then the person would have to be in the state of sanctifying grace. Right. So if they were in the state of mortal sin, then obviously uh, to fulfill the requirement of a worthy reception of Holy Communion, they would have to go to confession and receive absolution. But that is because of the requirement of receiving Holy Communion, and they can't do that in the state of mortal sin without committing a sacrilege. <clears throat> but there's no separate requirement for a confession that I know of. Okay, perfect. All right, next, uh, this viewer says, can you please ask, Father, if it is illicit for one to go to confess to a Maronite Catholic priest if he is not some blatant modernist, if he tries to be a good Catholic but thinks that having loyalty to and recognizing Francis is the correct thing to do, in order to not be in schism, uh, if they don't understand fully the entire mess of Vatican II, is it okay if one does not have any Sidivicantist priests around to go to confess to a validly ordained Marianite priest, Marianite priest, out of necessity for the sacrament of penance, or is an act of contrition good enough? Well, an act of perfect contrition would be, quote, good enough. I mean, uh, it, it is motivated, an act of perfect contrition is motivated by an, an act of perfect love for God. The Church has said that that obtains forgiveness for all sin. Right. However, that requires an ex well, what we have to call an extraordinary efficacious grace from God to overcome all obstacles in the individual. And we not only can we pray for that active, perfect love for God, but we have to aspire to that. We have to aim for that. I mean, actually, it's the first great commandment to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so this is what our lives are all about, loving God with a perfect love. In heaven, all the souls are there, all the angels who are there. Love God with a perfect love. <clears throat> and no soul can enter heaven without that, loving God wholeheartedly. So that's our vocation for every single one of us. We, can, we pray for that. Our Blessed Mother loved him that way, certainly. Um, but we can't... I mean, let's face it, uh, we can't presume <clears throat> at any given moment that we love God perfectly. And one might say, well, even if one does receive the grace of perfect love for God, does one know it? You know, can one say, oh, I just made an act of perfect love for God, and I made an act of perfect contrition, so all my sins are forgiven. So I don't need, I don't need confession anymore. Of course, no one would do that. And I think if one made an act of perfect love for God, really did, made such a perfect act of love for God, it would be so humbling, <clears throat> and they would uh, be moved by such a, a, uh, a profound adoration of God that they would consider their absolute unworthiness. As the saints got holier, they thought of themselves as less and less holy, uh, because they they understood, or well, they appreciated the holiness of God more and more, the majesty of God, the goodness of God, and uh, the more that they appreciated that, the lower they looked in their own eyes. I mean, our Blessed Mother herself said that it was her lowliness that uh, I guess basically was her chief characteristic before God and men, especially before God, right? That enabled him to work such great feats uh, through her, I mean, giving care of the divine motherhood. <clears throat> so she was the humblest of all, even though her love for God was the greatest, because her love for God was the greatest. So 
So in other words, Tom, um, in answer to our question here, um, can one go to a Maronite priest? He's being singled out a Maronite priest, so I guess maybe whoever this is has some access. And um, just for the sake of the people who are watching, that's one of the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church. It's very ancient. In fact, traditionally, they would offer Mass in Aramaic, <clears throat> the language of our Lord and the Apostles, right? Um, so, the um, if, he, if she, if whoever it is, found a traditional Maronite priest who still had the traditional faith and practiced the traditional Catholic religion of the Maronite rite, <clears throat> then I would think one could go to receive absolution from that priest. Yeah, they say if he's not a blatant modernist, well, I mean, there, you know, we have degrees of modernism here. When do they cross the line of blatancy? <clears throat> you know, how, modest, how modernist do they have to get before they're blatant? <clears throat> or uh, do they just kind of do that, like, skirt underneath that bar <laughs> and get through with enough modernism not to be blatant? I don't know. I'm not sure how you'd measure that. <clears throat> but they'd have to profess the traditional Catholic faith. And if they're confused about Francis, well, I understand that. I mean, people are confused about that. And, uh, you know, that's why I think it's something that needs to be discussed uh, among us in an intelligent, thoughtful, rational, Catholic way, rather than everybody shutting and shutting everyone else down, right? Um, so I certainly would not, um, you know... I'm, uh, you know, refused to go to a priest who had the traditional Catholic faith uh, uh, in the Maronite rite for absolution if he, if he simply was confused about that whole question. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of confusion about that question right now. Right. Uh, I mean, let's face it, there are those who are, who are blasting the city of Acontis for ages, right? Um, who now are saying, well, Francis isn't the Pope. Benedict is still the Pope, because his resignation was not valid. You know? um, and they're making a distinction between the, uh, the ministry and the office, right? So they're making this distinction between the ministry and the office of the papacy, right? Interesting. You know what is particularly interesting? Because there's this group of sative accountists who are called the, what are they called? Sede, uh, privationists? Privationists, yeah. We know a number of them, and they have a similar theory that, you know, they divide it into matter and form, like someone can be materially the Pope, but formally not. And so they have no authority, but they're still dressing in the, in the, in the uh, habit, and they're still sitting in the chair, okay? So they're keeping it warm, okay? But they don't have the authority of the Pope. So materially they're the Pope, so... Yes, in that sense, regard Francis is a material pope, <clears throat> but formally, no, because he doesn't have authority. Well, you know, when I read about the the Barnhart uh, uh, group and and so many more and more and more are signing on to this, that di distinguishing between the office and the in the ministry, it seems to me that they're basically making the same argument even though they would probably be horrified and angry that I suggested that, and they would probably be going at it hammer and tongs with each other, I think they're basically getting down to the same point. And I think they're both wrong. I don't think you can, you can, you can do that historically, Catholicly, traditionally, 
distinguish between the office of the papacy and the ministry, right? The Petrian ministry, as they like to refer to it. <clears throat> um, so, in any case, on that whole question of uh, him saying, you can't find a city of a countess priest, but could you go to a, a, a Catholic Maronite who, who believes in the Catholic faith and is trying to practice the Catholic faith? <clears throat> he was validly ordained. Okay? Again, you know, there have been changes in the Maronite, right, too, which are very suspect. Okay? But if he's validly ordained, could one go to him if he has the Catholic faith? I would say yes. Great. So that's the long preamble to the short answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, another question. Father, could you talk about mindfulness? He says, Veer says, it's something, it's some sort of thing that the VA is wanting veterans with PTSD to look into as a type of therapy. It says, it looks like a form of yoga, and as such, it scares me. <laughs> And uh, just for the sake of our viewers, Father, we uh, looked up the definition of mindfulness from mindful.org, and it tells us that uh, mindfulness is the basic human ability to be fully present, aware of where we are and what we're doing, and not overly reactive or overwhelmed by what's going on around us. Father, what do you think about, uh, Excuse me. about mindfulness? Well, if that's what they mean by mindfulness, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's just uh, another way of putting... The old adage, aje quod agis, meaning simply do what you're doing. You know, be attentive to what you're actually doing. <clears throat> Don't be distracted by everything going around around you or within you. Um, and, and, and the sense of it is do what you should do, okay? Apply yourself to, to your, the duties of your state in life. So in that sense, I guess mindfulness would be fine. But unfortunately, when, he, when he, they talk about the VA recommending this, and it sounds like a Buddhist practice, <clears throat> the first thing that came to mind is that, that, that they're referring to this as some kind of an oriental mystical experience. <clears throat> and having known people in the corporate world who were tapped to move up and they went through all of this EST and all of these other programs, it's all basically a bunch of... Uh, um, oriental mysticism, which is not Catholic at all. And by, for them, mindfulness is vacating the mind, avoiding the mind of thought, which is exactly the opposite of what God created the mind for. Ultimately, the God created the human mind to know Him, right? and to love Him. And when we meditate, that's what we meditate on. We meditate on the Supreme Being, God Himself. And when the Orientals uh, meditate, they want they meditate on non-being, like the exact opposite. <clears throat> so that's what I, f I figure that's what they're trying to get them to do, just like void your mind, vacate your mind. Uh, and uh, so to that extent, I mean, if this is some kind of Buddhist or Eastern mystical practice, I'd say, yeah, it is <clears throat> a very much akin to the occult. Yeah, okay. And, and don't do it. Don't yep. go there. Uh, I would recommend Catholic mindfulness, which is the, exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. And that is um, being mindful of the, of the divine presence. Being mindful not of the absence of being, but the plenitude of being in God, the supreme being, and try to fill your mind with the thought of God. And be aware of the divine presence, and even hope that someday by the grace of God you'll have the grace of contemplation. 
to fill your mind entirely with the awareness of God's divine presence. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, next, Father, could you talk about the four temperaments? Uh, this viewer says years ago they attended the First Assembly Church, and uh, they talked about the four temperaments there. And the sphere says it seemed like astrology, uh, like the temperaments were like the sign of the zodiac that you were born under, and it would determine your life and future. What do you think about that, Father, the four temperaments? Well, if, if uh, the four temperaments were akin to the zodiac, then I would say, no, no, you can't touch those things. But actually, they're, they're not. <clears throat> they're simply uh, four, just basically personality traits. And they're legitimate. Personality traits kind of grouped together. You know, you have the choleric and the, choleric and the sanguine, and you have the phlegmatic, and you have the um, melancholic, melancholic, right? <clears throat> and, I mean, these are the four classic temperaments. They each have personality traits that go along with them. And uh, they tell you people are not just uh, pure choleric. If they were, they'd, they'd be extremely incendiary. <laughs> Uh, but anybody who's pure sanguine would be just uh, partying all the time. And uh, yeah. Well, I guess there are people like that. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, they would tend that way. <clears throat> and uh, if someone was a pure melancholic, well, they, they would just be uh, too, which they, um, <laughs> um, well, you know, melancholy. They'd, they'd be just so, so always grieving and uh, could hardly emerge from their rooms. You know, it's like that's, they would be in clinically depressed all the time. <clears throat> and phlegmatic people, they can't even be bothered to get up and go open the refrigerator to eat. They probably starve in it. <laughs> but, so, I mean, you, you have these characteristic character traits. I'm exaggerating, of course. <clears throat> people are, are a mixture of them. But we all, we all can identify uh, in others traits of being kind of a hothead, have a quick, a quick trigger, but also quick to react, maybe angrily, but also quick to get over things. Uh, quick to react enthusiastically, but then kind of quick to let that pass too. Kind of characteristic of what they call a choleric, right? Uh, and the um, same with sanguine, it comes to the word sanguis or blood. And they basically just want to have a good time and relax, you know, they're not workhorses, that's for sure. Okay, it's not nose to the grindstone. Um, they could, you give them a job, uh, and you come back ten, 10 minutes later, and they're having fun. You know, they found a way to have fun uh, doing it, uh, whatever it is. And, um, of course, the melancholic is always kind of the woe is me, and kind of your classic pessimist, you know, and all is lost. <laughs> um, but people are, are a mix of these things. So there's nothing wrong with them, and in fact, they can be very useful. <clears throat> if people understand them, and they understand uh, rational psychology, human psychology, in the Catholic sense of the term. I mean, there's a whole study of rational psychology and scholastic philosophy, uh, which is really a, a study of the soul, right? And uh, the, the workings of the soul, in this life, attached to the body, and um, it, it covers the passions, which are real things, and how they how they manifest themselves. It covers the sense uh, cognitive powers, and and um, so rational psychology is a very interesting Catholic study of human psychology. That's what human psychology really should be. Um, not all this 
phony mumbo jumbo they teach you nowadays. Um, as though they're almost trying to put your mind uh, on, a, on a laboratory slide and put it under the microscope and see what, and poke you and see what they can make you do, right? Uh, behavioral psychology and all the rest um, can really get off track. Um, just making you look like feel like some kind of a specimen or some kind of a uh, lab lab animal. But true rational psychology in the scholastic sense of the term, Catholic psychology, actually does try to understand the individual, starting with the, the standpoint of the rational, the, the spiritual soul. Mm-hmm. And um, you might say, you know, there are different definitions of man. Uh, man is a creature composed of body and soul, made in the image and likeness of God, and so on, right? But there is one definition, man is a rational animal. And that's, that probably fits the definition that would be studied in terms of rational psychology, Catholic rational psychology. <clears throat> and these four temperaments are a good part of that, mm-hmm. to, to understand um, the different personalities. Yep. Okay. Can it be helpful? And parents and raising their children. Even parents who don't know the terms, choleric, sanguine, phlegmatic, melancholic, they know there are a difference in their children. And parents have the wisdom to know, okay, I have to treat, uh, you know, Paul d- different than the way I treat Peter. And not just because they're different ages, um, but I have to treat Paul different from the way I treat uh uh, you know, uh, marry too, you know, and not just because they may be of different ages and different genders, but they have their own characteristics and different own personalities and they react to things differently. Um, parents know this. And uh, what they're actually doing is just applying that instinctively to the raising of their children to try to bring the very best out of them. Um, so, anyway. It's not uh, it's like, n- like astrology. It's not astrology. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right, uh, Father. I would like to know your opinion of the following translations of the Bible: the Confraternity Bible and also the Hadock Bible. Well, uh, the Hadock Bible is a Catholic Bible. The Confraternity was more or less produced in the forties and fifties. Uh, a new kind of updated translation rendered more into modern English. Personally, I think the confraternity loses a lot. Yeah. I think it loses a lot in, in, the, in the translation becoming a little too pedestrian, rather banal, and uh, even loses a bit of the, the mystery. You know, you read the Douai Reims, as they call it, <laughs> the Douai Reims Bible uh, translation into English, and it has a certain elegance, right? has a certain uh, grace and beauty to it, a certain mystery too, you know, which requires you to actually go and do a little research and look into the background of things. But in the process of doing that, you actually learn more and you get an insight into the meaning of the text. Whereas with the confraternity and a more updated version, you, you read it, it makes sense in English, and you think you understand it. But you don't really go any deeper into it because you don't have to. You just read it. And it's kind of a past, and you just keep reading. 
<clears throat> doesn't really invite you so much to uh, explore, investigate, and understand exactly why was this term used, you know? Why was this expression used? Why was this kept in the translation into the, in the Dewey Ram? Um, you know, and there's always something instructive in that. So, as I say, I think the confraternity version has lost a bit. Remember when uh, Cardinal Bea uh, was given the task of translating the, the Latin Psalms into classical Latin out of the Vulgate, and he threw this enormous wrench in the, in the singing of the, and the chanting of the Divine Office, even just the reading of the Divine Office, the praying of the Divine Office. <clears throat> and priests were suddenly faced, uh, clerics were suddenly faced with this classical Latin text, and they were tripping all over it because they had been praying the, 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 the Vulgate version of the Psalms. And in some cases, maybe even the Attic version of the Psalms going back that far. <clears throat> they knew them by heart. They loved them. I mean, it was part of them. And all of a sudden now, um, is it, that's not it. You know, the language has been changed, the structures even of the phraseology have been changed, and you couldn't pray it anymore. Uh, it was really like throwing a sand in the gas tank, as it were, and it just gets into the engine and it just tears everything. <clears throat> so the modernists again, you know, they think, oh, you know, this is... This is classical, right? So it's got to be an improvement, right? This is more worldly. Well, that's the name of modernism. That's, that's their middle name, right? Worldly. And um, basically making it impossible to pray by tripping everybody up all the time. Uh, and uh, it reminds me of Francis when he was a young lad, tripping people up when he was trying to trip up the priest when he was trying to offer Mass. Remember that? <laughs> and he was serving it. That's what modernists do. They try to trip people when they're actually praying. So in any case, um, I don't like the contradictory. You might have gotten that impression. The Hadak is good, though, because the Hadak not only gives you um, all the, the mystery that comes with the Dewey-Arim translation, but it also gives you uh, references to the fathers. So, um, and those citations of the Writings of the fathers of the church can be very, very instructive. Give a lot of insight into, into the meaning of the text, especially where there's a mystery. So I would say if one could get a, a hold of the uh, Hadock uh, Bible, it would do well to do so. It's, very, it's a Catholic text. Right. It's a Catholic production, as it were. Good. Well, Father, this uh, might be the last email since we're on the subject of the Bible. This viewer says, I was listening to a non-religious <coughs> podcast in which it was mentioned that David did not actually kill Goliath. Rather, Goliath was killed by a man named Elanon. He says, a quick Google search revealed that there may be some plausibility to this claim. Could you please shed some light on this subject, Father? Well, possibly, Tom. You mentioned this. When you first said that to me, when you first said it, I thought David didn't actually kill Goliath. What did he do? Did he wound him? <laughs> <laughs> and then you, then you continued and you said, no, it was done by somebody else. And there is confusion, actually. I did look that up, as you know, because you brought that up. And uh, they actually make a reference, actually. Uh, there's a very good treatment of this, and I didn't print that out, because if I did, I would be reading it to you right now and adding another 10 minutes to the program. But you see here um, a reference. By the way, 
By the way, this um, gentleman is referring, I don't know, does he refer to Paralipomenon? Does he refer to Kings and Samuel? No? Okay. Because when you, when you look this up online and you try to find out um, whether it was David who killed Goliath or Elhanon, right? Elhanan. Um, you're probably going to be finding sites that refer to the first and second books of Samuel and first and second books of Paralipomenon. But in the Catholic Bible, those are referred to differently. Um, in, the, in the updated modernist and the Protestant Bibles, you have the first and second books of Samuel. Those are called the first and second books of Kings. Mm. And then we have the third and fourth books of Kings. You have four books of Kings. And what they're calling Paralipomenon uh, actually, um, what, they're what, what they're Chronicles. actually, what they, what they are referring to as Chronicles, Chronicles. right? Yeah. We Catholics refer to them as the uh, first and second books of Paralipomenon, going on the basis of the Greek term, okay, by which those books are known, Paralipomenon. <clears throat> and so that's what I'm referring to when I tell you this. Uh, for example, they talk about uh, the first book of Paralipomenon, which they like to rather call Chronicles, <clears throat> verse uh, chapter 20, verse 5, where it says, Another battle also was fought against the Philistines, in which Adeodatus, the son of Saltus, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gethite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Okay, so you go to this, if you have a Catholic Bible, the old style, and you're going to First Paralipomenon, chapter 20, verse 5, it makes it very clear, <clears throat> okay, that in this battle against the Philippines, Adeodatus, the name is not Elhanon, they, they translate it as Adeodatus, okay, that's evidently how it comes to us <clears throat> in, the, um, in the Vulgate. Elhanon, Elhanon means a blessing of God, or... God blesses, or God is gracious. Hana, Hana in Hebrew means grace. El is God, right? So this man was named, you know, God is gracious. Or whatever. Well, this is Adeodatus, and they have the translation, actually, Adeodatus squared of the Latin, given by God. Okay, literally, that's the name. It's the name that uh, Augustine gave to his, his own son, Adeodatus, right? So we read about it here in First uh, uh coming down to us through St. Jerome, translated from him, that it was actually uh, this Adeodatus, or this Elhanan, the son of Saltus, a Bethlehemite, who slew the brother of Goliath, the Gethite. And then it refers to Goliath as this, whose staff was, uh, whose, uh, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Okay. <clears throat> And uh, that's how it was referred to when David met Goliath, right? That he had a, a staff which was like a weaver's beam to show how gigantic the man was, that he could have a staff as big as that. <clears throat> um, but then you go back to um, Second Kings, which they like to refer to as Second Samuel, right? And you go to Second Kings in your Bible, it's verse 21, 19. And you come to this. Um, 
this is chapter 21, verse 19. Here it says, And there was a third battle in Gob against the Philistines, in which Adeodatus, the son of the forest, an embroiderer of Bethlehem, again, a Bethlehemite, right? Slew Goliath, the Gettite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And so here you have a case in Second Kings where it talks about Adeodatus himself slaying Goliath, and that's why there's confusion. Because in Second Parallel of Hominin, it says that Adeodatus slayed Goliath's brother. But here it says he actually slay, uh, slew Goliath himself. So what's, what's the fact here? Well, you go now to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 50, and you, here's what you read. Okay, we're backing up, getting, getting, getting earlier and earlier. 50, it says, And David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck and slew the Philistine. And as David had no sword in his hand, he ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, and of course, we know that he cut David's head off. And here, it is also in this very account, 1 Kings chapter 17, the description of Goliath, again, having a staff with a, a like a weaver's beam, you know. So, um, that was, I think, a, a kind of a, a legend, not a legend, but, but, but an account of Goliath, which was kind of emblematic of the might of the man the gigantic size and power of the man. So we find in 1 Kings, in uh, chapter 17, that David slew Goliath. We find in 2 Kings, chapter 21, that uh, this Adoedatus, alias Elhanan, slew Goliath. And then you keep going now, and you go to 1st Paralipomenon, or what they call Chronicles now, and you find it saying that, no, in fact, it was David who actually slew Goliath, and it was um, Elhanan, or Adeodatus, who slew Goliath's brother, Goliath's brother. So which is the case here? <coughs> well, the good, the worldly exegetes want to jump on this and say, well, what does this tell you? It shows you how unreliable the Bible is, right? Though it, it obviously wasn't David who slew Goliath, obviously it was this Helen Elhanan, and uh, so you can't believe anything you read. <laughs> well, and so they just dismiss it. But actually, if you read those who, are, who um, are, are more thoughtful, and they might even not even have, have faith, but they're still more thoughtful and they're more balanced and they're more reasonable in their explanation. And they realize that there are transcribers who write the accounts of the sacred scripture from one account to another and uh, there are what they call uh, glosses that are written by uh, written by scribes you know you may call it that um, and they make mistakes and they can actually make their way into copies of the scripture in fact if you go to the Greek scriptures as they are published by the American uh, Bible Society you find that you have the actual Greek text of the New Testament, uh, the top of the page, and virtual half a page of variants in the different manuscripts all over the world. Okay, 
And at first you look at all the variants and you think, my goodness, look at all those variables in there. And then you look at them in the Greek and you begin to realize, but they're so minor. They're so, they're so in, inconsequential. So they were so careful to preserve exactly the meaning. Um, and that's very impressive to see such minor, minor differences among thousands of, of manuscripts and fragments and libraries and museums all over the world. Um, but in this case, what they think is that a scribe actually did not understand the word, that he actually made a mistake and did not translate the word for brother as he should have. And so what he came out with in copying <clears throat> was he omitted the sense that it was, uh, it was uh, Goliath's brother who was slain, but it was the Goliath himself in uh, first parallel And they have good evidence for that. Um, you know, when you're, when you're praying the divine office in Latin, <clears throat> praying the Psalms for Compline one night, you read a statement in the, in the actual Psalm that says, uh, I did not understand the word. And it just inserted there, right in the middle of the Psalm, in the Latin. And some scribe, uh, was copyist, some copyist somewhere along the line, probably made that as a gloss as he was copying, and he put that as a note, which the next copier inserted into the text. <laughs> and um, my, you know, your thought is, if this is so obvious, and uh, you know, it, it doesn't alter the meaning whatsoever, you know. You think it's really wonderful that all these centuries and centuries, something like that is so readily identifiable. And you say, okay, this was, you know, a copyist mistake. It isn't actually the mistake of the of the sacred writer. <clears throat> but it is pretty clear when you when you actually compare these three texts from Second Kings, First Paralipomenon, and Second Paralipomenon. Uh, it is pretty obvious uh, that when, you know, they say that <clears throat> the matter was a copyist's error, you can readily see that. And uh, it is uh, the entry on second, second parallel that actually, actually corrects that. It makes it very clear. No, David did sling a lot. And this El-Hanan, or his name rendered in Latin as Adeodatus, uh, the Bethlehemite actually slayed um, Goliath's brother. Um, and it, uh, when you put them all together, it becomes quite clear. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Father. Appreciate it. If anybody wants, I mean, I can give them a link to uh, the explanation that I found, which yeah. I found very satisfying. Yeah. Very yeah. clear. All right, well, thank you, Father. I think we uh, got through nine or ten different emails tonight. And, uh, I think so, Jim. Multiple yeah. questions, so thank you. For You're getting good at me. this. You're getting very good at this. <laughs> try, try. You must be inspired coming from Roundtrap. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. I ask that everyone continue playing, praying for Father Baumberger and Father Buckley yes. yeah. and uh, many other dear souls uh, who, uh, who we know are in need of our prayers. God will bless them and will bless us for praying for them. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, 
to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.